You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. Deuteronomy 28, 38 I will stay until you return. Judges 6, 18 Where is Yahweh when you need Him? When you're tired, when you long for rescue, for better, when things are so hard it's almost laughable, when the absurdity of it all threatens to make a cynic out of you, where is He then? This is a story about self-imposed suffering the prisons in which we lock ourselves, the blame we cast when the bars seem oppressive. And more than anything, it's a story about a God who somehow remains patient during our absence, a God who stays until we return, and even perhaps commissions us to play a part in his wonders. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. It's a strange thing putting your child to bed in a cave. You cannot carry enough blankets or furs to fend off the chill of uncertainty, the wintry fear that haunts a refugee's heart. Even the bedtime songs sound strange, bouncing off the limestone walls and echoing through the shadowy corridors as the bats take flight for their evening raids. Does the boy ask when they'll get to go back home? Does he play along when his father tries to turn the whole thing into a game? Will he dream tonight? Will his subconscious imagine a life of peace? Best if he doesn't, thinks his father, perhaps. Dreams only disappoint the Israelites these days. There is no shalom in this place. He tucks the child in, and before he tries to get some sleep himself, Gideon heads to the mouth of the cave to scan the horizon once more for the prowling Midianites. seven years. For seven exhausting, chaotic years, the Midianites and their alliance of Bedouin clans have been flooding across the Jordan every time the crops of northern Israel, Manasseh in particular, are ready to harvest. 
bending heads of wheat, a joyful sight to any farmer, now fill the Hebrews' hearts with dread, a signal that the raiders will not be long in coming. Powerless against them, the people of Israel have given up trying in vain to defend their resources and instead have fled into caves and hideouts, concealing themselves in the mountains until the looters and their wretched innumerable camels have had their fill. Every year, for seven years, Midianites, like locusts swarming from the east, descending upon whatever villages they choose and decimating everything in sight. Grab what you can and run. This is Israel's battle cry. If only the mighty Joshua could see them now. They pray, of course, but Baal and Asherah are silent, as if they don't hear the cries of their loyal worshipers. Gideon's father, Joash, even built the village altar to them. But that doesn't seem to have given them favor. Fickle gods, these. It's enough to make a religious customer shop around. And so the Hebrews have, crying out finally to the God of their fathers and grandfathers, Yahweh, the one who worked wonders and brought them out of Egypt and into this land. But those are old stories. That was a long time ago. please, these ardent cries for help, as if the Hebrews are surprised by their self-inflicted suffering. In time, Yahweh cannot help but respond. He sends a prophet to Israel with this simple, pointed message. I brought you out of Egypt, and out of that place of slavery, I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. The Midianites have not happened upon their position of oppressor these last seven years. They've been allowed it by Yahweh himself. A promise fulfilled. Late afternoon. Somewhere in Ophrah, on the northeastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, an elderly oak tree stands guard while, under the shade of its limbs, Gideon stomps around atop precious stalks of wheat separating the kernels from the chaff, a job that's supposed to be done by an ox on a threshing floor, where there's plenty of room for an ox or two and where winnowing makes sense. With room for the wind to blow the separated chaff away as you toss the threshed stalks into the air. But this is not a threshing floor. It's a wine press a shallow basin carved into the rock beneath this oak tree where grapes are meant to be crushed, their juice then running off into a narrower, deeper basin carved below. 
this is not a threshing floor, and Gideon is not an ox. His father's prized bull is grazing with the others in the pasture beside Joash's house, and Gideon is out here, hiding from the Midianites as he tries to thresh a little more wheat to add to his stores. Somehow, his household has managed to scrape together an ephah or two of flour, a seemingly sizable amount, but when you need bread for an entire household every day, and when you never know how long it will be before what you have is raided, you do not miss an opportunity to thresh, even if this is the only one you get. And so here Gideon stomps, infuriated, surely, by this maddening task and the absurdly desperate measures he and his people have been forced to undertake, terrified that he'll be discovered by some enemy scout covered in sweat, bleary-eyed from his hopeless plight and the swirling wheat dust that's everywhere you don't want it, just like the Midianites. What he wouldn't do for an end to this chaos, for some peace, the shalom they've all been craving for so long. Where is Yahweh when you need? Yahweh is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon's head swings around. He sees a man with a staff sitting beneath the oak tree. How long has he been there? And who is he? Perhaps it's the man's timing. Perhaps Gideon has had a long day, a long week, a long several years. Perhaps Gideon just isn't in the mood for company. He certainly isn't in the mood for saccharine platitudes. Yahweh is with you? What a ridiculous thing to say here, now. Nothing could be further from, pardon me, my master, says Gideon. But if Yahweh is with us, he pauses, unsure of where even to begin. Why has all this happened? The words burst from him like a breath held too long, desperate in its release. And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, look, Yahweh brought us up out of Egypt, didn't he? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. It's at this point that Yahweh, he is the man, or he's speaking through this angel who looks like a man, or the man is an incarnate, pre-incarnate Jesus, or, well, the exact nature of this manifestation will mystify scholars for generations to come. Yahweh turns and faces the pugnacious Gideon. Is he angered by this outburst? Or is he smiling? And says, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. It's him. Is it him? Something about... No, it can't... But the way... Wait, did he call me a valiant warrior? And did he just tell me to... Pardon me, my master, Gideon says. How can I deliver Israel. Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. A smile again. But I will be with you, Yahweh says to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Gideon's mind races, trying to process, is he Yahweh? Assurance. That's what he needs. Evidence. Something tangible. Proof he's not daydreaming. If I have found favor with you, 
Give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Something, ah, please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. Please. Gideon's brow lifts, hopeful wrinkles forming around his eyes. I will stay until you return, comes the reply. Gideon rushes home, butchers a choice goat, washes his hands, and hastily prepares some bread. If this visitor is... only the most generous offering will do. He dumps a tenth of an ephah of flour out, about three and a half liters, to mix with water. No, more. Half an ephah. He grabs the water. No, this won't do. In seconds, the entire ephah is on the table. 35 liters of flour. Finally, the water, furious, kneading. Gideon, his hands covered in sticky bits of unleavened dough, tosses the giant loaves into the oven and turns his attention to the goat meat, grills it, perhaps, with his favorite spices. Precious these days, of course, but fit, certainly, for this occasion. While the meat is on the grill, he prepares a broth. Maybe he gets help from his servants. Does he try to tell them what all this is for? At last, it's ready. The meat still steaming into a basket, the broth fresh from the fire into a pot. How much time has all this taken? Surely more than he was thinking it would back at the wine press. Will he still be there? He said he would wait. Gideon races as fast as this enormous picnic will allow to the oak tree. In the distance, Gideon sees the man waiting patiently in the shade. When Gideon offers the man the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh, the meal, the visitor says to him, take the meat, with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone and pour the broth on it. Okay. Gideon obeys the meat of the prized goat, loaf after loaf of bread. How much secret threshing did that much flour require? And the broth. He pours out the broth over all of it, the liquid flowing freely from the pot, glossy atop the bread and meat running down onto the stone. Gideon looks up and sees him extend the tip of his staff toward the offering, touching the meat and the bread with its tip. Immediately, fire erupts from the rock, red and orange and blue and yellow and white flames dancing wildly, the meal Gideon prepared now incandescent. And then, nothing. The fire is gone. There's a pile of ebony ash on the blackened rock, The angel of Yahweh is nowhere to be seen. And Gideon suddenly is terrified. It was him, or basically him. Gideon's heart drops. Didn't Yahweh tell Moses, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live? Gideon shouts into the air, oh no, Yahweh, I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. Shalom, peace to you, 
says Yahweh. From where? Don't be afraid, for you will not die. Nothing else. Gideon, hands trembling, that word peace echoing in his ears, begins gathering stones, stacking them one after another atop and around the blackened one. The villagers will not like this. His father will not like this. An altar to that old god Yahweh in a village loyal to Baal and Asherah? That won't do at all. But he must do this. He can never forget this moment, this calling. The rocks now stacked, dappled with Gideon's sweat, ready to receive more offerings. Gideon names the altar. Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh is peace. Night falls on the Jezreel Valley, moonlight illuminating Joash's altar to Baal and his bull-shaped image. The wind whistling past the towering pole beside it, a carved wooden pillar with exaggerated features, the image of Baal's female counterpart, Asherah. Gideon lies in his bed, his own bed, thankfully, tonight, rehearsing the extraordinary events of the day. Images of goat's blood and unleavened bread and holy fire flash, no doubt, in his mind as he tries to imagine how to begin to fulfill Yahweh's commission. Suddenly, he hears a voice. That voice. Take your father's prime bull, the one that's seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper altar to Yahweh your God on top of that hill. And then, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the bull as a burnt offering. Courageous altars tend to make firm foundations for deliverance. And this one will certainly take courage Gideon's heart beats hard in his chest as he considers Yahweh's command. His father will not like this. The villagers will not like this. But he must do it. So Gideon arises, awakens his ten best servants. He was exaggerating a bit at the wine press when he underplayed his family's resources. And obeys Yahweh. Immediately. This immediacy comes not so much because of a submissive urgency, but because it's dark, and if he acts quickly, no one will see what he's about to do. The stones of Baal's altar groan under the pressure of Joash's prize bull. Magnificent animal pulling with all of his strength against this mass of rock and mortar, against this stronghold of rebellion and unfaithfulness. A living, 
breathing, sweating bull, yanking to the ground the blind, deaf, and dumb bull to which Joash and his people bow so willingly. And then the stones scattered across the ground, Gideon unsheaths his axe. One swing, then another, and another, and another. Blade meets wood and echoes through the sleeping streets of Ophrah. Sweat soaks Gideon's hair, runs down his forehead, and blurs his vision. How could they be so blind? After the oak tree, after meeting him, delusion has fallen like scales from his eyes. This ridiculous pole, this fiction, this is why the Midianites and their hordes have been able to kill so many of his countrymen. This fabricated surrogate and its uncanny allure is why they starve and they cower and they put their children to bed in caves at harvest time. Chopping it down has got to feel good. Does Gideon smirk as it dawns on him in this moment that his name means chopper, woodsman, wielder of the axe? What a coincidence. The servants help to stack different stones, and the hatchet work continues until the Asherah pole lies in pieces, and the pieces are thrown into a pile beneath a new altar. Now, the bull. The seven-year-old bull, born the year of the first Midianite swarms. The bull that's survived somehow season after season of raiding. The animal that's a testament both to the length of Israel's subjugation and to the quiet providence of their God. Joash's prize bull is slaughtered by Gideon. The axeman draws his blade across the animal's neck and crimson spills from the wound. Blood shed for the remission of sins. Smoke rises from the altar. It is finished. Who did this? The neighbors shout their outrage when they show up for morning worship, only to find Baal's altar demolished, the Asherah pole felled, and the blackened bones of a bull resting atop a new altar. All day, no one can talk about anything else. An investigation is launched. Somehow, Gideon is implicated, a loose-lipped servant, perhaps. Immediately, a mob bangs on Joash's door. Bring out your son! He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole. Joash glances at the faces, measuring their fury, trying to think. He manages a laugh. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. The people in the crowd look at one another. Joash's logic irritatingly sound. That's true. That's true. Baal will deal with him. Gideon's days are numbered. You know what? Someone finally says. Let Baal contend with him. And one by one, they walk away. 
Was Joash prepped for this moment? Did Gideon tell him what he'd done? Did he recount to his father all of it? The man at the winepress, the offering under the oak tree, the commission and command of Yahweh? Did he apologize about the bull? And did Joash repent? Vow to help his son bring the nation back to the God of their fathers and free them from Midian's tyranny? It seems that perhaps he did. Maybe Joash even calls his son by the new nickname Gideon earned among the people of Ophrah. Someone starts it and then it just kind of takes off. A derisive epithet at first, but then kind of perfect. Jerub Baal, they call him. Which means, let Baal contend with him. Of course, as Gideon now knows, Baal can't contend with anyone. But Gideon will contend with him and those who worship him, seeking his people's peace. Thanks to Yahweh, it will be quite a fight. Justin here. Thanks so much for listening and welcome to season three. I hope you enjoyed part one of The Commissioner and the Axeman. Between seasons, I present a bunch of story options to the patrons of Holy Ghost Stories. These are the texts that I have in mind for the upcoming season, and I have the patrons vote for the ones they want to hear most. Well, when I did that several weeks ago, the patrons spoke loud and clear. Gideon was right at the top of the list. So as a thank you to those fine folks who support the show on Patreon, not only did we begin season three with Gideon, I'm telling his story in two parts. You can tune in to hear the conclusion next time. Two things before I let you go. First, this season's timing is likely going to be a little different than the last two seasons. For one thing, there will be 13 episodes instead of 10, but the release schedule will pause from May 10th to July 10th so that I can take some time for some special Holy Ghost Stories research and writing. More on that to come. The reasons for this are quite exciting, and I cannot wait to tell you about them. All right, second, the Holy Ghost Stories merch store is live. This is something many of you have asked for, and it's finally here. If you want to be one of the first to rock an official Holy Ghost Stories t-shirt or sweatshirt or coffee mug, this is your time. And hey, throw a photo on Instagram and tag the show. I would love to see you with your cool new stuff. A word of warning though, wearing one of these shirts or drinking from one of these mugs will distinguish you as a person of substance and a champion of independent art that is rooted in an exploration of Yahweh. If you can handle that, go make a purchase. If on the other hand, the thought of being remarkable scares you, please avoid this merch store. Holyghoststories.org slash merch, links in the show notes. Finally, a big season three shout out to the Tours. If patronage was free solo climbing, they would be Alex Honnold. 
Look it up if you don't know. Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric and Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are amazing. Till next time.